to be here this morning and to spend this time with you. I've been blessed already by the singing and the sharing, and I bless you, Jana, for sharing what you did. Um, yeah, just pray God's healing hand to be on you. It's good to see everyone that's here, visitors included. Dan, if I would have known you were coming, I would have... Uh, I would have talked to you on the side. <laughs> Good to have you here. Well, this morning the message is uh, is related to uh, the sort of the, the service in general. As you know, that we don't have the the Sunday school because we want to have a time of uh, just uh, sharing some appreciation for Henry and Martha and their years of service here at the congregation. And uh, as they look into retirement, and we just want to uh, bless them. So the message is sort of geared to that as well. I've entitled the message, The Jimmy and Johnny Factor. Quite a few years ago, probably 30 plus years ago, um, we had a school class reunion. And... Uh, only a couple years after we had been out of school, I, I would guess it was probably within the first five years or so that we were out of school, and um, to my knowledge, it's the only one that we've ever had, my class, and um, something was said at that gathering that really shocked me, uh, something that I didn't know previously. And uh, in the course of conversations, various ones of, of my classmates took it upon themselves to dub different titles uh, to the various classmates. And uh, one, of course, was the class clown. You always have a class clown, right? And that was not me. Uh, you know, there was one who was the favorite or the best sports player and and, of course, there was always the one that was most studious. And I humbly say that it wasn't me. <laughs> but I was given a title that really shocked me. And I had no clue that my classmates felt that way or saw me as that kind of person. But the title that I was given was the teacher's pet. I'm telling you, my friends, I did not see myself as the teacher's pet. Uh, we were talking about one teacher in particular, and uh, let me just tell you a little bit about my relationship with this teacher from my perspective, not my classmate's perspective. I'll tell you the truth, I'll tell you that as a young chap, I was afraid of this teacher. And being the youngest of five siblings, I had the distinct advantage of having several brothers that had charted the way of uh, this, uh, this, uh, the waters of this uh, teacher. And the prognosis of their evaluation of this teacher was not all that encouraging. And so I came into fourth grade fairly with some fairly concrete 
uh, preconceived ideas about what I would face. And so I weighed all the options, and I concluded that since my, my strength was in academia, uh, I figured I would schmooze her with the greatest charm that I could give to stay on her good side. Now, the difference between my idea of how my charm worked and how my classmates evaluated the situation was vastly different. I always felt like I was just on the brink of disaster. <laughs> and uh, and uh, so, you know, as I, as I assessed the situation, uh, I concluded that a shiny red apple once in a while would really probably do a lot of good in our relationship. And uh, so anyhow, eventually I, I earned the title teacher's pet. But the truth is, I was simply trying to stay on the good side of her. Now, don't tell my classmates any different, okay? We'll just keep that as a secret. And that's something between you and us. Well, <coughs> my life has sort of been revolved around school in many different ways, teaching and, and uh, students. And uh, as I was a, when I was a young chap, um, I'm not quite sure how old I was, but maybe four or five years old. Uh, my, my father was the first principal at United Christian School, and he taught for five years. So I was, uh, m I remember many nights spending, you know, many nights there at, at school. And, um, and then later my sister also became a teacher there, and then she went on to further education and, and has been in teaching career for nearly 40 years. Of course, uh, Bronson taught some. Uh, Glenn and I have taught our children for the last 20-plus um, years. We have one more student to go to graduate. And, of course, then the most recent involvement was that I've served on the school board at the UCS school board for the last three years. So, so I've been involved extensively. In the last, uh, in the world of education, for the last, well, for for a lot of my life, actually. And when it comes to school and teaching and things of that nature, you know, some things seldom change. And I want to tell you a story about two boys this morning, Jimmy and Johnny, who were brothers and they were involved or enrolled in the same school. They got along well with their teacher. In fact, the one, I would say Johnny, probably could have been given the title teacher's pet. And uh, it, was, it seemed that he was especially fond of the teacher, and the teacher reciprocated to that relationship. But there was something that was flawed, and, and, and the conflict was not so much with the with the student and the teacher as it was between the parent and the teacher. And uh, I would just like to, you know, as I said, there's, there's some things that seldom change or, or, or it, and, and because of that, I just want to sort of push the pause button in this story and just say that one of the greatest tragedies I think one of the greatest tragedies is when a parent does not support the teacher. 
Parents, please, please support your teachers. Um, I've probably had, well, I'm going to call it an advantage. In my younger years, I thought it was a disadvantage, uh, having had a father who was a teacher, and he came from that side of it. And so whenever I had any issues with my teacher, guess, guess whose side he took? It wasn't mine. I remember one time especially when I had an issue, and I, I have no clue what the issue was, but I sort of slanted the story in my direction, in my favor. And as I was lamenting to my father about this, he said, well, he said, let's go talk to her. Oh, no, 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 Dad. No, this is, you know, it's not that bad, you know. <laughs> An end of discussion. There's little that's more discouraging to a teacher than for parents to undermine their authority. I think that response is uncharitable, it's unchristlike, and you do a horrible disservice to your child to do that to your teacher. If or when you ever undermine the, the teacher in the presence of your child, you're modeling how to disrespect those who God has placed over them. And so just please check your attitude. And by the way, I would take it so far to say that you don't even have to say your laments or your complaints to your child. If it's in your heart, if that attitude is in your heart, it will bleed off to your child. And so it's very disheartening for a teacher not to have the support of the parent. The teacher is no different than any other parent or any other person in that they have strengths and weaknesses. It doesn't matter who we are. If we look hard enough, we can always find something wrong in the other person. It's the very thing that we've been trying to promote here as a congregation. You know, it doesn't take you long to sit beside the person in the pew next to you to find something that really grinds you the wrong way. And if you keep focusing on that, guess what? It's going to ruin your relationship. But if you start the things th of 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 blessings that that person brings to this body. When you start focusing on the good things and start, and we hear it from Sunday to Sunday, I'm so blessed every Sunday when I hear it, just people blessing each other. It builds the body. And that's the way we do with our teachers. Yeah, I'm sure they have weaknesses, and I'm sure there's things that, that you don't agree with, but you know what? Focus on the things that they do well and just build them up. Okay, I got that off my chest. Well, back to the story again. The conflict in our story was a parent that was trying to manipulate the teacher. And her meddling caused bad feelings between her sons, her two sons, and the other students. In fact, the other students were greatly displeased with what she was doing. She was stirring the pot, as it were. And uh, there was contention among the student body. Well, I'm sure that you know by now that Jimmy and Johnny were not students in an elementary school. But they were adults who were students of the master teacher, Christ Jesus. I'd like to go to the passage this morning in Matthew chapter 20, first of all. And I've invited 
several of the uh, individuals from the congregation to uh, narrate this story for you. So all those who are involved in this, come on up, and I'm going to have you uh, read the text this morning. I thought about doing the same thing that our, uh, what's our teacher in Wednesday night class? The, the, the guy that's always blundering, what's his name? Roger? Yeah, I thought about trying to do it Roger style, but I thought, nah, I won't do it that way. All right, come on in here. And uh, they're going to narrate this story. And by the way, I don't think I told you, but we're going to do Mark, the, the passage of Mark as well. It's going to be back and forth, so thanks. We'll just assume that. Gather in. And then, uh, yeah, we'll do Matthew first. Back into uh, the uh, passage in Mark chapter 10, and we'll read that as well. Slightly different from the uh, passage in Matthew. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Let's pray. Father, as we look in your word, we ask that you would rightly divide the word of truth to us. Help us to learn what you have for us to be taught in today. We give you glory. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Years ago, I came across an article that uh, the National uh, uh, Institute of Mental Health did, and it was sort of an, a fascinating story, and it was a study that the researchers did on a colony of mice. And uh, the, the, the cage that they put some mice in a cage about nine foot square. And it was comfortably designed to house about 160 mice. So for two and a half years, the colony of mice grew from eight. They started out with eight of them. And it grew to 2,200 mice in a cage of about nine foot square. They had plenty of food. They had plenty of water. And other resources were continually provided for them. All the mortality factors were, 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 uh, were, were taken away, except for, obviously, the aging factor, uh, and the rest was, was eliminated. But at, at the about a two-and-a-half-year mark, as the, as the population sort of reached its zenith, they began to see something in this colony of mice that was very intriguing to them. Within the cage, from which the mice could not escape, they began to disintegrate. And here's what they found. The adults uh, formed groups or cliques uh, of about a dozen or so to each group. And uh, in these groups, the, the, there were different, the different mice performed different functions, and uh, they acted differently from their normal behavior. The males, who normally protected their territory, withdrew from leadership and became uncharacter uncharacteristically passive. They, they stepped away from their normal tendency as, a, as the, the aggressors, the, the leaders, in the pack. The females, on the other hand, became unusually aggressive, and they forced out their young. They did not take care of their young. They pushed them away. So the young also found themselves without a place, and they grew up to be increasingly self-indulgent. They ate, they drank, they slept, they groomed themselves, but they showed no normal assertiveness in their behavior. And what is even more surprisingly, that the whole mouse community became disrupted, and after five years, all of them perished. All of them died, even though there was plenty of food, plenty of water, and other resources that they needed in order to live. Now, I want to give a disclaimer right off the bat, and I am not lowering humans to the level of mice. Okay, when I use this example, we are not mice. But mice are created by the, by the same person that we were created by. And there's something about mice that I think is, is not a whole lot different from humans in that we are created to live in the space and in the open and to think beyond ourselves. I want you to get that. We're, we're created to live beyond ourselves, to go beyond ourselves. The mice had everything they needed to survive. But what happened? Why did they self-destruct? 
I think the reason is, my friends, is the moment that our focus turns inward for extended periods of time, we begin to self-destruct. I think you've heard Keith teach already that, that we've focused a lot of how to build up the body here at Berea in the recent years. But I heard him say, you know, it's time that we step away from that and we begin to think of how to build up those outside of these four walls and each other. How like God in his infinite wisdom to understand how easily we would self-destruct if we are only left to fend for ourselves. He knew our tendency, I think. God knows our tendency to become individualistically minded and to think little of our fellow man. How like God to set parameters around us to keep that from happening. It was the very parameter that Jimmy and Johnny and Mrs. Zebudi needed in their lives. She was all focused. Mrs. Zebudi, Mom Zebudi, <laughs> however you want to call her, was all focused on when she came to manipulate. I, I, I use the term manipulate Jesus to cater to her whims and wishes. Now, if we stop to think about what she really did, obviously in her mind, her request was not all that out of line. It was apparent that Jesus had included her, her two boys in, in that inner circle of 12. And so why not ask him to take them to that next level of that really intimate circle of friendship that is, uh, so, you know, that, that, that's available to each person? that very intimate area of, of friendship that is only reserved for a few people. But in her request, there were 10 other moms out there somewhere that probably wanted the same thing for their child. And so as I thought about that, I thought about my prayers. And I'm challenging you to think about your prayers <coughs> have you ever paused and stepped back far away, far enough away from your prayers to think about what you're really asking God in your prayers? Do your prayers request things at the expense of other people? What if Jesus would have answered Mrs. Zebedee's request? you already see what kind of contention it caused in the student body. What if he would have followed through with her request? And so maybe there's a reason why God doesn't always answer our prayer. We can't see it because we're right up close to the situation. And when we're up close to a situation, our perspective of this, whatever it is in front of us, is a lot different than when I turn it around and you see it from a distance. And so we, s we have to sort of step away from the distance, have to sort of step away from it, view it from a distance, say, is my prayer really selfish? Is it self-centered? Or is it something that God can truly honor and, 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 and answer? So a situation that happened to us just this past week. And Glad just made the comment, you know, I was praying to God for this certain thing, and I never stopped to think about how it would affect the other person. 
Jesus saw the larger perspective in this circumstance here. And he took the opportunity to teach us a life lesson that I need to hear and that I'd like to share with you as well this morning. I'd like to go back to the passage of Scripture, Matthew. We're basically going to be going out of the passage of Matthew. If you notice, between the two passages, in, Mar- in Matthew, it was the mother that asked Jesus the request that was given. In the book of Mark, uh, it was the boys who asked. So I'm not quite sure which one. It really doesn't matter. It's a trivial point. But I am struck with the last verse in that passage of Scripture where, it's, where Jesus responded and he said, Whoever desires to be first, let him be your slave. And then he goes on to say, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give. Jesus, in a very pointed way, confronts the Jimmy and Johnny factor that is within every heart that is here this morning. Within every heart here this morning, we have what I call the Jimmy and Johnny factor. There is within within man the innate nature to be both selfish and self-centered. And that's what I would refer to as the Jimmy and Johnny factor. That innate nature within us that is selfish and self-centered. We look to ourselves. We're here to protect. My natural tendency is to look out for James. The Jimmy and Johnny factor within me is selfish at its core. And it's here to protect James. That's the natural tendency within me. Selfishness has brought a tragic end to many relationships. At the least, it stirs discord among our fellow man. Again, I would just take it back to see what the response was of the fellow students. What did they say? It said that they were greatly displeased. Both accounts give that. That they were greatly displeased at what was requested. All the elements were present for there to be a schism that, that, was, to be, that was being fostered in the body there. And how many times has my relationship been threatened or even worse, ruined because of my self-interest? And I just regret to say that I know, I know that there's been broken relationships in my past because I did not humble myself in the relationship. I was out to watch out for myself. And as a result, there was a broken relationship and, and there, was, there, was, there was hurt and pain. Jesus, being very aware of that Jimmy and Johnny factor within us, seized the moment to give us a very important lesson. And he offered a proactive measure to our propensity for selfishness. And I'd like to ask you, what is it that he offered us? I'd like to have some feedback. What is it that he offered us? What did he give us to counter the Jimmy and, fa- Jimmy and Johnny factor within us, the selfishness within us? Opportunity to serve. Servanthood, right? Exactly. Servanthood. The struggle with servanthood is that it is diametrically opposed to my selfish nature. 
that means that I have to be very intentional about my act of service to another person. Let's go back to the passage again and just read that. It says, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I'd like to make a couple of noteworthy observations in the passage of Scripture. He makes a comparison between the rulers of the Gentiles and those who are great. Notice the similarity between the two. The rulers of the Gentiles, they exercise or they lord it or they lord their rights over the other person. The rulers of the Gentile lord their rights over the other person. The, and, and the term lord uh, has the idea to lord against, that is to control, to subjugate, exercise dominion over them. Now, who do you think came to these people's minds? Who do you think came to the Jewish people's minds when Jesus taught this? The Romans, absolutely. The Romans. They knew what it meant to be lorded over or to be controlled by the Romans. The Romans found no difficulty exercising dominion over them. And I, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that they took advantage of the situation many times. In fact, that's probably why we have the passage in, in Matthew uh, chapter 5 when it's talking about our enemies and, and going the second mile. Roman rule said that they could walk up to any Jewish person, and particularly young men, and they could the, the Roman soldier could give their pack to the young man and say, carry it for the, next mile, uh, uh, for the next mile. And they were required by law to do that. You couldn't say, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, you could, but you probably wouldn't last very long. Jesus came back and says, hey, don't just carry it for a mile. Carry it two miles. So they knew. They knew what it meant to have it lorded over them. You could ask any Jew that day if they had a clue what it meant to have a Gentile rule, and they knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. The question to you is, what comes to your mind when you think of someone who lords it over you? Do you have somebody like that in your, in your life? Did you have somebody like that in your life? How did you feel? How, how do you feel? about the, uh, the Health Care Act. Did you feel like you had anything to say about it? Did it feel a little bit like it was lorded over you? Jesus also noted another class of individual, and he talked about those who desire to be great. Those who desire to be great, he says, exercise authority authority over them. And again, that term exercise authority is actually only one word in the Greek. 
and it means to have uh, to have wield full privilege over, and it has the idea of flaunting a position. Power becomes the main item of concern with these people. There are some people who are given a place of responsibility, a role of responsibility, who are more concerned about maintaining position than they are administrating care to those who've been, who've, who are given to their, to their charge. And uh, these same individuals are not afraid to flaunt their power, to use it to their advantage. Have you ever bumped in those? How does it feel? Jesus makes, takes these two comparisons, takes these two individuals, and he comes back with a very pointed piece of instruction that is good for all of us to hear. And he says, yet, yet, it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. If you want to be great, and by the way, he uses the same word he used up a little bit earlier when he talked about those who want to be great. He uses that same word. If you want to be great, the person that is flaunting their powers, then learn how to be a servant. The word there, servant, is diaconus. It's the same word that we get the word deacon. It's the same word that is used back in the pastoral epistles in Timothy and Titus when it's talking about deacons. And it simply means a person who attends is a waiter at tables or other menial duties. <clears throat> if you want to be great, learn how to be a deacon. And you don't have to be ordained to be this kind of deacon. You're already ordained by God. Maybe not by man. But you're called to be this kind of deacon, to th be this kind of person, to be this kind of waiter. <coughs> this is Jesus' idea of how to be great. You really want to be somebody? Just learn how to serve somebody. Learn what it is to just wait on them. But he doesn't stop there. And you know, that's something I've noticed about Jesus time and time again. He always raises the bar just a little bit higher. <laughs> if that's not high enough, he's raising it just a little bit higher. Because he comes back, he says, if you want to be first, <coughs> excuse me, if you want to be first, then learn how to be a slave. Now, I found something in my studies that was amazing on this word slave. I, I don't know that I had ever looked it up before. I just wanted to know, what does that mean, to be a slave? It was amazing what I found. Guess what I found that this word means? 
to be a slave. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? He meant exactly what he said. A slave. Someone who is literally or figuratively, involuntarily or voluntarily a person who is a slave. Jesus is serious about this stuff. His kingdom has no room for wielding position and or flaunting power. His kingdom comes from a completely different concept. By the way, this is a concept, again, that is so completely foreign to humanity. It does not come natural within us. So foreign, in fact, unless you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you, you cannot achieve what he's teaching here. It's not in us to do it that way. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way that we can do what he's calling us to do. Otherwise, it's impossible for us to carry it out. Jesus finishes this conversation with Jimmy and Johnny and the other students by giving us a glimpse into his own life. And I'd like to just, in, in, in he lays out three simple steps of action, three simple steps of action, how to flesh out this whole thing of being a servant. And by the way, just, I'm sure you put this together already. The reason I'm talking about this is because we're, we're, we're giving recognition today uh, to a couple that has served this congregation for many years. And um, we give glory to God for that. Um, and we thank them for what they did. <coughs> I'd like to wrap up this message with just leaving you with these three principles that Jesus gave us. <coughs> It says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to be served. And so my instruction to you is learn the art of serving. And you say, duh, of course. No, no, I'm serious. Learn the art of serving. I'm talking about going beyond head knowledge and getting into the grime and grit of life where the things you do, is shoe leather living. This is typically the level of, of, of serving that calls for a lot of input from you without the server, uh, without a lot of reciprocation from other people, the ones being served. In other words, you do a lot of work without a lot of attention being called to it. Years ago, we moved into the community of Sioux Narrows, and um, it was a brand new community to us as a family, and and we were just looking for ways that we could plug in and and uh, become part of the community there and and to serve and and there was a predominant uh, person in in that community that was uh, in charge of the uh, well, she had several responsibilities, but her main area of of a responsibility was to take care of the medical, uh, the, the, the emergency and the medical and, and the fire, and she was sort of the head honcho of that whole uh, system there. And she was a little bit standoffish to us, and I'm not sure why. Was it just her nature? I don't know that we did anything that, that caused that. Uh, she was just a little bit standoffish. I couldn't, couldn't seem to get uh, close to her. And so... As I prayed about it one time, I was just, God gave me this idea. 
And I rallied the troops. And by the way, the troops was Bronson and Austin. And uh, we went and we decided that we're going to just take some brooms. And we're, it was a big parking lot, a paved parking lot, uh, probably as big as, as the parking lot of Howard, maybe big, I don't know. But it was, it was fairly big. And just go sweep it off. It was a lot of gravel and dirt and stuff was on. So we just decided we'll go sweep it, just clean it off for her. You know what? That changed the attitude with her. Uh, from that day forward, the, the, the response from her was completely different from anything else. Now, uh, we didn't do it to try to get on her good side. I'm just looking for ways to serve. But you know what? It changed the relationship with her, between her and us. Sometime later, God was still trying to teach me what it meant to serve cheerfully. And uh, so he commissioned me to do a very disdainful yet special task that uh, he probably doesn't call a lot of other people to do. <laughs> and I'm almost embarrassed to tell you what it was. But it was to wipe off the rims of toilets, sometimes even in public places. Now, I know I broke all the rules of germs and, and whatever else you have, uh, and it was very gross. But I had a very simple philosophy, and I really truly felt like God was asking me to do this. And I had a very simple philosophy that if God asked me to do this, then he has the ability to protect me from germs. And what I discovered was soap and water goes a long way to eliminate germs. And nobody probably found out about this for several years that I felt like God was asking me to do this. And I don't give these examples to pat myself on the back or to cause you to feel guilty next time you see a dirty rim and don't clean it. That's not why I discovered long ago that God calls some people to certain tasks that he doesn't call other people to. And so I release you from that. But he called me to that for his glory, for his glory. And it taught me how to serve other people. Your serving may be in different ways. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your community. Maybe it's your church. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's the government. I don't know where he's calling you. What I do know, he's calling you. Serving is certainly not something that is full of glitz and glimmer and glamour. Serving requires you to think outside of the box. And the box I'm talking about is the me box. It calls you to think outside of the me box. And that little, that little children's song, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, J-O-Y must be Jesus first, yourself last, others in between, has a lot of truth to it. Learn the art of serving. Second thing that he brings our attention to is that he gave. It says he came to give. And <coughs> I would just like to suggest this morning that you learn the art of giving. I'm talking about giving because you want I'm, I'm not talking about giving because you want to give or because it's a good place to give. 
I'm referring about the kind of giving that is done when no one, no word of compliment comes back to you. There's people that take advantage of that kind of giving. Did you know that? There's people that take advantage of that kind of living or giving. People who have not learned the art of giving take advantage or they suck off of people who have learned the art of giving. Did you catch that? People who have not learned the art of giving live off of people who have learned the art of giving. And it is it is hard. It is difficult. I'm not, Jesus did not ask us to do an easy thing. And I'm not asking you to do an easy thing. When people take advantage of us, it just doesn't feel good. And our tendency is to say, you take advantage of me once, shame on me. You take advantage of me twice, shame on you. But you know what? That's not Jesus' way. You're going to, in fact, Jesus said in another place, he said, you will be taken advantage of. That's just the long and the short of it. You will be taken advantage of. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not wise as, as, as serpents. Uh, I think we do need to be wise. We need to exercise wisdom. But the fact is, when you give to the level that God calls us to give, you will be taken advantage of from time to time. That's okay. Do it for God's glory. Don't worry about that person. God will deal with him at the end. You have to give account to God for the way you responded. So learn the art of giving. Years ago, I, 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 I recall a, a pastor uh, preaching on the difference of being an energy giver and an energy taker. Takers live with closed fists because they are concerned about losing what they've hoarded. That's an energy taker. An energy giver, on the other hand, lives with an open hand because they, they have a firm grip, not on the things that have been given to them, but they have a firm grip on the concept that everything that has been given to them has come from someone else. And so their hands are open. Their hands are open to give, and their hands are open to receive. And you're just that channel in which God can flow through you. I love that illustration. That's an energy giver. How have you given? How do you give? Is your hand open? Or is it clutched tight to hang on to, to, to what you've got, thinking that it was because of you that you have what you have. No, no, no. Don't ever come to that place. Don't ever think that what you have is yours because of what you've done. You have what you have because of what has been given to you. When the philosophy of your life reflects an open hand, then you don't even have to consciously think of opening up to receive because it's already in that position. So learn the art of giving. Learn the art of serving. Learn the art of giving. And then the last one that I want to leave you with 
is that he says that he came to give his life a ransom. The word ransom, I would suggest, has the idea of sending uh, something to, uh, to loosen within. Uh, that is a redemptive price. And, and so I would just like to, to challenge you to learn the art of dying. <coughs> Excuse me. There's an aspect of serving that involves di- death and dying. Death not to extinguish life, rather dying to that innate nature of self. When the mother of Jimmy and Johnny inquired Jesus for her son, she had no clue really what she was asking for. And Jesus touched on it. I don't know if you caught that or not. He says, are you able, are you able to drink the same drink that I drink? What was their response? We are able. And by God's grace, as far as we know, they were able. But it comes at a cost. It comes at a price. It's dying to self. When God created man, says in Genesis chapter 3, when he created man, he says he formed Adam, and then it says that he breathed into him the breath of life. He breathed into him the breath of life. And ever since that time, from that moment on, man was not accustomed to death of any sort. There's life within us. And so we are not accustomed to death. We are generally jolted by by death. Romans says he calls it a sting. And that's why I resist when I need to say no to self. How does that flesh out? I don't know how it fleshes out for you. Maybe it's dying to time, your time, your space, your dreams, your goals. Maybe it's dying to your retirement account. I don't know what it means. What death it means for you. But I would challenge you to learn the art of dying. Because in it, you will find life. Let's pray.